0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. How are we doing today? Well, good. Good, good. Um, Randy and I were just talking about last night's game, so I, I just made the comment that dominant pitching beats dominant hitting every time. So, so we'll see. There's always next year, right? Unless the Lord returns, and then there isn't. But man, it's going to be good to be with Him. So you have your Bibles, turn to Jude, the book of Jude. uh, That last book right before the book of Revelation. Uh, We're going to continue our study this morning in this challenging letter that Jude writes. How many of you like a good jelly bean? A good jelly bean. What's that? Red ones? Oh, black. Oh, you're like my dad. Oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh-huh. Jelly Belly has quite the following. And over the years, they've come up with some pretty amazing flavors. I mean, when you consider the, uh, the way they can make a piece of candy taste like something that isn't candy at all, it is pretty amazing. Um, they've also done something very terrible. Um, have you ever heard of the game Bean Boozled? Yeah. Yes. Okay, some of you have. Um, so Bean Boozled was introduced as a dastardly game a few years ago by some friends from church. We were hanging out with them. It was New Year's Eve. They brought this Jelly Belly Bean Boozled game. It, it was a box and it had a spinner on it. And you spun the wheel And you picked the color jelly bean that came up on the wheel. The problem is it was either chocolate pudding flavored, which isn't terrible, or canned dog food. (laughs) And I'm telling you, canned dog food tastes terrible. (laughs) Um, They have a, a, a newer version of the game. Uh, These are some of the new flavors in this Uh, juicy pear or a booger, Uh, (laughs) strawberry banana or dead fish, Uh, berry blue or toothpaste, birthday cake or dirty dishwater. I had to change my dishwasher out this summer. That's terrible. Um, Peach or barf. And again, it tastes just like it. Uh, Tutti Fruity or Stinky Socks, Pomegranate or Old Bandage, I don't, (laughs) Toasted Marshmallow or Stink Bug, Cappuccino or Liver and Onions, some of you are like, hey, that tastes pretty good, Um, or Buttered Popcorn or Rotten Egg, Um, and I'm telling you, like, it really tastes like that, so even if you don't want to play the game and you just want to be... play a trick on some people buy a box of them put them in a dish and just set them somewhere in your house so uh, that that one's free so um so here's the point right what looks normal and edible is often replaced by a, a putrid taste I really don't know how they capture the flavor so well. I don't know who has to be the person that has to taste test every single one until it's dialed in just perfectly. Um, But if you want to ruin any party, play this game. Um, But what's interesting about the game Bean Boozled is that the jelly beans look identical. I mean, you can't, from the outside, see any difference. There's nothing different on the outside that sets one that is edible off with one that makes you want to run to the trash can. I was thinking about that when I read Jude this week as we are again confronted with the damaging work of the false teachers. And this is Jude's emphasis. False teaching was a terrible problem that was existing in the church. And so Jude expertly points out the deceit and destruction of the false teachers that have crept in. Remember from a few weeks ago, Jude said in Jude, um, let's see, Jude 4, they had crept in unnoticed. And, and that word crept in means to worm their way in. They had slid in. They, they, they kind of snuck in and they're sitting arm to arm with you. They, they've crept in and they are preaching a false gospel that is devoid of Christ's likeness And godliness in the believer's life. Now, one of the telltale signs of a false teacher is that they are preaching a message of Christianity without sanctification. Like they're they're talking about God, they might talk about Jesus, they may even read verses out of the Bible. But their message, if you listen, is a message of Christ without growing in Christ, without sanctification. Yeah, they promise all the good things, all the benefits, all of the, the wonderful gifts that you can receive in a material way, but they are not challenging the heart to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Their message is selfish. It's all about them. It's about their desires. What will God do for us to make our lives better? They remove themselves from biblical authority, and they remove themselves from accountability. We've talked about false teachers from time to time, and again, we're confronted with this theme in the scriptures, and it's not by accident, because every generation has false teachers that are raised up to distract, to... Pull people away from the truth. And these false teachers, if you, if you follow them, and what I mean is like if you're just observing what they're doing, if you're observing the influence that they have, if you kind of watch from afar, because I hope you're watching from afar and you're not watching as a student, but what you see is they're building empires unto themselves. They're building their name. They're building their influence. Now, I'm not going to make blanket statements and say, you know, everyone that has a conference and everyone that writes a series of books and everyone that has a podcast and all those things, because there are some good, sound teachers that have those things. But when you begin watching false teachers and and what they're teaching, it's all about the brand and the brand is them. It's not God. They're not lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. And I feel like we live in an age where we are being spiritually beanboozled. It looks kind of the same on the outside. But their truth is not truth at all. They're people who peddle a false gospel that, in all reality, is anti gospel. And they package it in terms that the Bible uses. To convince people of a me-centered, sin-absent, Jesus-imitation kind of belief system. It's a feel-good, get-what-you-want-out-of-God pile of garbage. That's what it is. It looks good on the outside, but it'll make you run to the trash can. It's an affront to the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm so glad that we've been warned of dangerous activity of false teachers. Apostates is another word that the Scriptures use. Those who have abandoned the truth for a lie. Now, the New Testament is is full of descriptions of false teachers. And if you are a child of God here this morning that is serious about your relationship with God, and part of that seriousness in your relationship with God is that you go to His Word, you run to His Word to be fed and to be nourished, what you are going to read time and time again, especially in the New Testament, are these warnings about false teaching and false teachers and what they are doing and how they act. I mean, you can turn to... Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when He said, Beware of the wolves that come in. Or you can read Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles. Or you could read some of other Paul's letters to the churches where he's warning about the false teachers that have come in and that are corrupting the truth. Or you could turn to John in 1 John. Or Peter in 2 Peter. Or here in Jude. But you see, like different voices throughout the New Testament. It's not just a Pauline doctrine. It's not just something that John mentioned in 1 John. But different voices, even the Lord Himself, have spoken in to God's community and said, be careful. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Right? We need to... Be on guard for the gospel we need to contend for the beauty of the gospel god has clearly described who they are and what they're all about and and what's sad to me as a pastor as as someone that has been called to help come alongside of god's people to help encourage them in their faith as as a person that that as much as I can in my flesh, and and more so as I rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, um, care for the truth of God's Word, that it is inspired, infallible, that it stands on its own, that these people have followings that are huge. And it just seems like multitudes of people As Paul says, who want to have their ears tickled, just run to this feel-good, me-centered, have-nothing-to-do-with-sanctification kind of message. Now, Jude expounds on what he described in verse 4. Let me read verse 4 again. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Like, that's the big picture statement of what they're guilty of. And what Jude has been doing in the last few verses in this letter is he's building on that through illustrations. He he makes the truth statement, and then he says, let me paint a picture for you for how this is happening. And so we looked a few weeks ago in verses 5 through 7 in the examples of how God destroyed the Israelites in the wilderness for unbelief and how God had sent angels who left their proper abode. They rejected authority and they had taken up a relationship with the, the women of the earth. And what does it say? That God immediately punished them and put them in prison for the future day of final judgment. And then finally, with Sodom and Gomorrah, what did God do as that wicked uh, group of not just Sodom itself, but Sodom and Gomorrah, and there were other cities in that region that were involved in all sorts of crazy, uh, gross sin? He sent fire from heaven and raised the cities to the ground. And so the point was, in those verses, that God is not going to mess around with His holiness. He's judging sinners for their disobedience. And much like how he did in the past with them, he will do now with the false teachers. Now, verse 8 continues to build on this thought because as we're looking into this portion of Scripture, Judah's going to give us three more examples. He's going to give us another example that kind of builds upon this, but three specific examples in verse 11. And he does it in a masterful way as he's connecting the actions of the Old Testament and the curses that were delivered upon these people to what the false teachers are guilty of in the church. So by the time we're done with Jude in a couple weeks, and we're going to hear this message again and again, um, I, I hope you get this perspective that we can't mess around with false teachers counterfeit ministers those who satan is using to to distract people from hearing the true saving gospel of our savior jesus christ we can't mess around with them yeah you know, it's kind of like i don't know some people think like how close can i get to the fire just avoid it at all cost avoid them at all cost flee run from their teaching so jude introduces this uh, section when he says in verse 8, yet in the same way. He connects their actions with the events of verses 5 through 7, but now Jude is building upon it. He says, Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. So Jude reveals that these false teachers were living in a dream world. Whether they were communicating things, they received from sleepy visions, or they had just fallen asleep at the wheel and they're just kind of coasting through life, holding on to whatever they want to teach and not really coming to reality of what God wants them to reveal, that they're living in this kind of dream world that everything is about them and it doesn't matter what they say for the sake of the people that they're influencing because in all honesty, a false teacher doesn't care about the student. A false teacher doesn't care about the soul of the person that they are influencing. It's all about them. In mixing the order that Judah just revealed in the three prior illustrations in verses 5 through 7, they, def- they defile the flesh like the people in Sodom did. They reject authority like the angels. And they even revile angelic majesties. They revile Angelic majesties. Now, that, that, that's not a, a, a group of words that I use often in, in my own communication and conversation with people. So we've got to kind of understand what he's saying here. And I'm so thankful that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude used an example of how they revile angelic majesties in verse 9. But here's the thing the example that he gives in verse 9 leaves me with more questions than answers. Now in verse 9, this is what we read. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, just let's pause right there for a second. If you're a student of Scripture and you've read the Old Testament, do you ever remember anything like this being recorded in the Old Testament? You don't. It's not there. It seems like a strange incident because it's not recorded for us in an earlier scripture. Now, we do know that Moses died outside of the promised land. He did that on unbelief, but we read in Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 and 6, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. So at least we get some kind of understanding. We don't know where he is. We know the region that he was buried. But Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? Jude's not writing this on his own. He's not a maverick writer. If he was a maverick writer and put things in that he wanted to say this book would not be in the Scriptures. God's Word clearly tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Every word of this collection of books is God's Word to us and for us. So, let's speak to what we know We know that Moses died, and according to Jude, when Moses died, Michael the archangel disputed with the devil about Moses' body. Now, what's interesting to note is that this incident is found in an apocryphal, which means a work not included in the inspired text. It's It's found in an apocryphal book that existed in the time of the New Testament and even in the Old Testament. And it's a book that has the title, The Assumption of Moses. Now, regardless of the specifics, we know that there was some kind of angelic tussle over Moses' body. There was some kind of argument with what we do with Moses' body. Now, the first century Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus wasn't a Christian, but he wrote with great accuracy about the history of the Jewish people in antiquity before Christ and also during Christ. Josephus suggests that it was known amongst the Jews that one of the theories of this angelic tussle, this fight between Michael and Satan, was that Satan wanted to resurrect the body of Moses, like take it out of the ground, exhume it, and use it as some kind of distraction for the people of Israel, where they would begin to worship that, much like the golden uh, staff, right? because our hearts are prone in our religious pursuits to worship things that we should not dare worship. And it was going to be an idol for the people of Israel. And so God, as as Josephus talks about, God called Michael to come and to exhume the body and to put it somewhere where it wouldn't be a distraction for the people of Israel. That's That's kind of what we know. Michael is referred to as the Archangel here in Jude. Archangel means chief angel. It's only ever used in the singular, meaning there's only one archangel. And we first meet Michael in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. So in the Old Testament, Uh, prophetic book of Daniel, we are introduced to this Michael, and it says, "...but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes... Came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. And so remember, Daniel is in a faraway land. He's praying and asking God, seeking God's face for God's best for his people. And in Daniel 10, we see that the prince of the kingdom of Persia, but what's interesting is the prince of the kingdom of Persia is not like a a, a prince with flesh, like a man. The prince is referring to an angelic influence, a demon, a fallen angel the prince of the kingdom of Persia, was withstanding me for 21 days. So for three weeks in prayer, we read that Daniel was hindered by a spiritual force over the region of Persia for 21 days. And so God sent Michael to his aid. And then in Daniel 12.1, we read, now at that time, Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So now when you go two chapters further in Daniel's book, you're entering the future promises, the future prophecy of what's going to happen at the end times for the people of Israel. And it says there that at a future time, God is going to raise up Michael, the archangel, who is the chief angel that watches over who? Your people. Michael is the guardian of the nation of Israel. And in the future, when God is in the process of bringing his people back to himself, Michael will be integral and protecting the nation of Israel so that God's purposes will stand. And we see that, and I love it, because Daniel wrote a long time ago in the Old Testament before Jesus. And we read in Revelation 12, which is a long time ago, but more recent after Christ, these words, and there was a war in heaven Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth And his angels were thrown down with him. So we read in Revelation 12 that there's going to come a point in the future as God is in the process of bringing everything back to a place of godliness. He's bringing restoration. That there's a point where there's going to be a fight in heaven. And Satan will be cast out of heaven. And it begs the question, Well, that means that Satan has access to heaven right now? He does. Read Job 1 and 2. He goes up to the throne of God and is accusing and casting insults on behalf of Job before the Lord. And so we see that Michael, protector of Israel, is involved in a very important ministry for Israel. So picture with me what Jude is saying. There's some kind of angelic fight going on between the chief angel and And the former chief angel. Satan was the highest of the angels. And what was his fall? He wanted to be like God. And God cast him from his presence. And so you have Michael on one side. You have the devil on the other side. Who is the highest of the fallen angels. And what does Jude say about this situation? I think this is very important for us. What Jude says about this situation. The sh- just picture with me the strongest angel, Michael, okay? Even him, when disputing with the devil, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment. But he said, The Lord rebuke you. So, what does that mean? What does this mean for us? The most powerful angel hid himself in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. The most powerful angel hid himself in the Lord Jesus Christ because it's only Christ that is the victor over Satan. The angels aren't. Jesus is. So what does that mean for you and me? Well, it should mean that we engage our enemy as exhorted in Ephesians 6, by putting on the full armor of God as we defend ourselves, but more importantly, that we don't dare for a moment think that we can take on a fight with Satan all by ourselves. Now you might say, well, I've never tried to tussle with Satan that way. But a lot of false teachers use strange language about rebuking Satan and doing certain kinds of things to say that they have authority to say things to Satan that even Michael, the chief angel, dared not say. If Michael didn't, how much more can we not? Church, we're in a spiritual war, but our best offense is to defend ourselves by hiding ourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our adversary is stronger than we are. He is, and he wants to take us out. That's what Peter says in First Peter five. He's prowling around, seeking to devour and destroy those. Like he's he wants to pick off the weak ones, like a lion, and he's hungry. So the point that Jude is making is that even Michael understood authority. He understood authority. He understood his place and responsibility. He trusted God. The false teachers do not trust God. They have abandoned his authority and, and have become a law unto themselves. They speak and they teach and they act like they can say whatever they want and find a Bible verse to back it up and say that's, that's true because I said it's true. Church, be aware, contend for the faith, and understand that false teachers are not seeking your best, your good, but they're building kingdoms unto themselves. And in verse 10 we read, but these men revile the things which they do not understand, And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. In verse 10, again, these false teachers were reckless. Now this week I was, it was like one of those rabbit hole moments, right? You you start, do you ever like Wikipedia something or go on YouTube and watch something and before you know it, you're so far away from what you started to even want to watch and read, you're like, how did I get here? Uh, but this week, I, I stumbled on YouTube, a, a channel called Wretched Radio. It's a, it's a good channel. It's a good ministry. Uh, Wretched Radio is a, a ministry that is put out uh, to kind of warn us from false teachers and, and the destruction that they have. And, and they had this mashup. It was um, a series of clips, I think it was like 15 minutes long, of just examples of what false teachers are saying in the contemporary world. And I, I watched some of these strange things. And I was just like, like one guy was serving communion and took a knife in his hand and pretended to cut his hand and squeeze his own blood into the cup. And I'm just like, if, if I'm on the other side of that, why would I partake in that kind of meal? Celebration, commemoration. And, and I don't want this to be about name dropping, but I will hear. It's Kenneth Copeland who has this large ministry that is so far from the truth. And he's a false teacher, leading people astray. But what do we read? About these people. They revile the things which they do not understand. That word revile means to blaspheme. They are blaspheming the things they don't understand. And they're speaking against God in the sense of they think they're speaking for him, they're actually blaspheming the truth of God. They spoke against the things that were God's revealed will in his word. They assume they have greater authority than the Word of God and the things that are taught. Essentially, they think they know better than the Lord Himself. And what does Jude say about them? Well, the things which they know by instinct, they act like unreasoning animals. And by these things, they are destroyed. Basically, as followers of gratifying their own flesh and in their own pursuit, they will be destroyed by their own pursuit for the things of the flesh. Remember what Jesus said in Mark 8? Jesus said in Mark 8, verses 34 through 36, and he summoned the crowd with the disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Like that should be a, a a huge reminder to us, what is a prophet? Right I, I, in that mashup of false teachers on that YouTube channel, there was another false teacher that was talking about uh, being thrilled that God provided the funds necessary to procure a private jet so that he can continue his ministry. So at this time, we're just going to pass the offering around, <laughs> right? I mean. It's it's absurd. It seems absurd to us. And yet they have such a large influence in the culture and world that we live in. Their actions are like unreasoning animals or wild beasts. They pursue whatever is in front of them. It's whatever is in front of them they go after. They, they, a, a wild animal cannot reason, right? They can't have the thought, okay, if I hold off and plan around this, then I can pursue something else. Or if a wild animal who's hungry sees an animal of prey in front of them, They can't reason, I can't chase after this animal if it runs into the highway because it's possible I might get hit by traffic. They just do what they do because that's what they do. Their stomachs control their actions. And sadly, many of the false teachers today and throughout history have built empires for themselves as their students hand over their possessions for the false teacher's sordid gain. Right, we've all heard the tragic stories of people that have been duped by false prophet kind of ministries, right? It starts with like a letter, hey, send a couple dollars and you know God will bless you tenfold and then they send some more and send some more and send some more and then they don't have any life savings because they've handed it all over with the promise that God will bless you. It's that kind of thing. And so what is so deceptive about their teaching is that it is often not an outright lie. It's often the truth that has been bent in a subtle way, much like in Genesis 3-4. In the garden, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Satan lied to Eve and to Adam. He tempted them through a lie, something that sounded like something God would say, but he didn't say it. So he comes along in these subtle ways and false teachers say, yeah, you know, this is what God means when this verse is written. And they subtly bend it and they think, oh, yeah, that kind of sounds true. That sounds right. And Jude says, be careful. So how does he wrap this short portion up in, in these illustrations? He says in verse 11, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. What does Jude say? Well, he's had enough. I'm starting to like Jude more and more as I read this book. He's had enough. What does he say? He says, woe! Not woe, but woe to them. Woe is a statement wishing curse or doom on someone. It's the opposite of a blessing. Much like Isaiah in Isaiah 5 declaring woe to the false prophets. Or Jesus in Matthew 23 who woes the scribes and Pharisees seven different times. Woe to the false teachers. And so if it matters, and it really doesn't, but if it matters, I would like to go on record since we're recording this, my woe with them for the false teachers. Woe to them. Here in verse 11, Jude highlights three personal examples. He doesn't go to universal examples like he did in verses 5 through 7. Now he narrows in to three personal examples of the deceit of the false teachers. They are following the same path in destruction as of Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Now Cain's way, as we read in Genesis 4, was the way of godlessness and sensuality, violence and lust, greed and blasphemy. And it led to divine judgment. Cain's way was the way of pride. Cain wanted a, a relationship with God on his own terms. Remember in Genesis 4, right? The first family, Adam and Eve, had sons, Cain and Abel. And at some point, as the boys grew older, it came to be sacrifice time. And at sacrifice time, we read in Genesis 4 that the boys knew that they needed to offer the fat of their offering to God. But Cain didn't. He chose a grain offering, not an animal sacrifice. And so one brother was blessed over the other and the other grew angry and he murdered his brother. And God judged him. The point of comparison is that selfish regard and envy, which was at the root of Cain's sin, is a hallmark picture of what false teachers do. Selfish regard and envy. The second example is Balaam. Balaam's an interesting illustration. Um, Are you guys doing that in your Bible study? Okay, so right now, Angela's leading the ladies Bible study in, uh, is it in Numbers? in the book of Numbers, and um, either they've done or will be doing this situation. So if you have any questions about Balaam, see Angela. Um, Um, But what do we know about this man Balaam? Well, he counseled the Midianites to seduce the Israelites to commit idolatry and sexual immorality in Numbers 31, verse 16. And his way was to use the spiritual gain for his own profit. So we re, Jude writes, and for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet, and instead of counseling for the good of Israel, he kind of buddied up with the Midianites, and they struck a deal that he would speak against Israel for his own gain. The Midianites would be padding his pocket. And we know the story, it's kind of... Uh, uh, one of the strange encounters in, in Numbers, right? God intervenes, and what does God do? He silences the prophet, and he speaks through the prophet's donkey. So the donkey speaks human words. And I would say that there, that donkey spoke truer words in that day than all of the false prof, prophets have ever spoken. His error was thinking that he could get away with his sins. The false teachers also compromised God's truth in a way that involved idolatry and immorality. As as Jude said earlier in Jude 4, with licentiousness, it's about fleshly gratification. And Jude says they will perish under God's judgment as Balaam did. One commentator wrote, a man can seek for something other than money. However, he can seek for prominence, for popularity, for fame, for applause, or for position. There are many different things which would put a man in the way of Balaam. It's not just all about money, but it might just be about themselves. If everything that they're doing is me-centered, woe to them, Jude says. And finally, in the final example, we have Korah. Korah's rebellion was against God and and God's appointed leaders. In Numbers 16, we have this, another strange example of what was going on in the wilderness journeys of Israel, that there was this man, Korah, and a following. In fact, Numbers tells us that 250 people perished with Korah as Korah raised up a rebellion against God by opposing Moses and Aaron. And so what did God do to judge them? He opened up the earth. The ground opened up, and they were swallowed up whole. According to William Barclay, who is a... Uh, long-gone Bible commentator, he said, there was a sect of the Gnostics, which we talked about Gnosticism as a false teaching, a false system, that was all about this special knowledge that God gives us, and they experience it through sensuality, and these higher visions, like dreams and things, that uh, William Barclay says, there was a sect of Gnosticism called the Orphites, that regarded Cain, Balaam, and Korah as great heroes of the Old Testament. And Barclay regarded much of what Jude wrote as a criticism against that sect of Gnosticism. So as we kind of put a a bow on all of this, Jude's message is clear. The apostates will be destroyed. False teachers will be destroyed. They will be. Those who teach a false gospel... Those who lead God's people astray for the sake of their own desires, for their prestige, for their gain, God will destroy them. And so as we wrap up this morning, as your pastor, I implore you not to be bean-boozled. I implore you, I beg of you, for your good. Just because a person has a podcast, a website, they write a book, they hold a conference, they preach at a church, doesn't mean they are teaching the truth. Just because a person has thousands of likes or retweets, it doesn't mean what they are saying is true. Test what they are saying against the truth of God's Word. Follow John's counsel in 1 John 4.1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prof- prophets have gone out into the world. So, ask yourself some questions as you're reading about people who have an influence in teaching circles. Is it a message that puffs up the person? Is it, suppo- is it supposed good news without really teaching Jesus is the answer for the really bad news of sin in the person's life? Is it the promise of blessings without the call of sanctification? are you challenged by their teaching to die to yourself and to pick up your cross to follow Jesus Christ? If you are not sure, like you might be asking this question you're like, I'm not sure. Here's, here's some good news for you. In the community of faith, in God's community, He has given us protection. He has given us built-in protection for the care of your soul. pastors and elders. Shepherds, under shepherds of the great shepherd. If you're a part of this church, our elders and and Pastor Dustin and myself take our calling very serious to protect you from the ravenous wolves that want to destroy you. And so what does that mean? If you're not sure about Someone, or what they're saying, or you heard something, or maybe you have some friends at work that are saying, hey, you need to listen to this guy, you need to read this book, you need to hear this podcast, and you're just not sure about it, please come talk to us. Please. Please do so. Listen, the longer I serve in ministry, the more I realize the serious call of the ministry. James tells us that guys like me who teach encourage stricter judgment. Because we're going to be accountable for everything that comes out of our mouths. And for those who teach a false gospel, woe to them. And so may God protect us from serious error as we seek Him as revealed in His Word. Let's pray.